Welcome to Clout and Conversation, a podcast of voices from the creative industry. My name is Katie Espester, and our guest today is a celebrated author, architect, art collector, an exhibition curator, and festival promoter, Ray Falk. Ray, along with his brothers, established the Isle of Wight Festival in 1968, which by its second year was already attracting 150,000 people and remains an incredible success to this day. On the back of that, I have to say, I've, I read Ray's recent book called Stealing Dylan from Woodstock. I, I tend to think that the Isle of Wight Festival alone would have cemented your reputation as, as one of the great innovators in the creative industry. But then you went on to help plan the leisure content of the new city, Milton Keynes, and brought in the architect and inventor, Buckmills Minister Fuller, on board with the project. Now, if that isn't enough, you then went on to be an environmental campaigner, as well as curating exhibitions of French Art Deco masters. Ray's latest publication, Picasso's Revenge, which he co-wrote with his daughter Caroline, is an art detective story set in the 1920s and has been described as, and I quote here, the classiest novel to come out of Oxford since Philip Pullman's Northern Lights. Now, this has been in terms of a very long introduction, Ray. I do apologize for that. But you're a hard man to condense into one neat little paragraph. Because not merely have you been successful in um, one area, you've been successful in a number of areas. So here's the obvious question, Ray. Uh, how did you do it? Well, I think there's... Th- thank you for that very kind intro- introduction. Um, and thank you for inviting me. Uh, I, I think to answer that, I, I have to, first of all, point out that I often feel myself that rather than being some sort of polymath that does all these wonderful things, I'm rather a jack of all trades and master of none. <laughs> and and most, of, most of the things that I've, I've done have been sort of fairly successful. I don't think I've ever done anything that's been phenomenally successful in terms of catapulting me into fame or great riches or anything like that. The, 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 the Not way, even the, the Isle of the Wight? The high achievers. Get. It, well, the Isle of Wight was... It was a bit of a freak occurrence in a way that we we had all that happen when we were just in our early 20s. And, you know, there's a lot of good fortune involved. And we, we were successful. We didn't make a shed load of money. Uh, we got a certain amount of notoriety out of it. And that was... You got a couple of good books. I have to well, tell you. That was like 50 years later <laughs> or 45 years later that the books came out. So I haven't spent my whole life dwelling on that. And in fact, I, I think most of my life I've barely thought about it, really. Is that right? Um, it's only recently in writing those books, it's all come back again into my mind. And doing the research for the books was quite an amazing experience, actually, because I was out there hunting down old friends and contacts, people I haven't seen for decades, and, you know, re-establishing friendships from way back. So oh. that, that was a great treat to do that. Oh, how lovely. Because as we move on in life, we go from different towns or countries even, and we lose contact with people, don't yes, we? Yes, of course. We all do it. And, yeah, yeah. And, and so to be forced into looking at people and going and seeing them and talking through things of, from the past. You know, it's a, it's great, a good excuse. That, that was a great excuse to do it. And Especially because, you know, looking, looking, just the name, you know, I hesitate to say name dropping because they weren't the huge names then that they are now, these iconic figures of 1960s music. And, no, and yet you not, knew them. No, that's not strictly true, actually. They, I mean, take Bob Dylan as the, the biggest name that we that would dealing with he was the the number one name in the whole of the counterculture really yes in the, in the states and here and, and across europe and as far away as australia japan everywhere and dylan was like the 
ultimate name in the county culture. And when we went for Dylan, when we booked for Dylan, tried to book him, we only had three names on our list that, that would be strong enough to draw a big audience to the Isle of Wight. You've got to come over by ferry, and yeah. nobody's going to do that unless it's something yeah, special. Yeah, not willingly, yeah. So all of the other bands that you can mention, all the other acts that there are around, would um, would not um, do that, because you could see them any time. So with Bob Dylan, he was one of three. There was Dylan, the Beatles, and there was Elvis Presley. Those were the three, and the Presley was obviously unsuitable. The Beatles, <laughs> the Beatles were sort of split up, and it hadn't done live concerts for years anyway weren't about to and so we were just left with Bob Dylan and he he was a huge name and it was through Dylan that we drew this 150,000 people that you mentioned and that was our break and it was a bit like winning the lottery because why would he come and do a concert for us we were inexperienced we were on a tiny island that he'd never heard of he lived in Woodstock and he had the whole apparatus of the Woodstock Festival there on his doorstep trying to get him to come and play but he didn't like that <laughs> he resented that and I suppose that's why he looked for an alternative and through a lot of assiduous sort of negotiation and talking to his management over a period of months leading up to it I think our thing became a serious option obviously it did and he eventually went for it but it was a great piece of good fortune that was more to do with good fortune than our great skill I would say but where did you get the guts to do it, Ray? Come well, on, just to e like you kept emailing him. Like this is not like what did you write him a letter? Like no, no. But in those days, it was in some ways it was much easier in those days because you you didn't you didn't have emails. Obviously, you could phone people up, and people would take your phone calls. Especially going to, to America, you'd phone up and you'd make a person to person call, and so they'd take it, and so you go straight through to the manager. Oh. No, you can't do that nowadays. True enough. You never get anywhere near a manager nowadays. No, no. You got barriers around everybody and so we're straight on to to, to Albert Grossman who's Dylan's manager who's my brother that made that first call and he said well not very likely he said but call back in about a month and see if there's any change it, so it was kind of we took that as being very positive and then, <laughs> then I took over and I phoned back and that instead of dealing with Grossman I found myself dealing with Bert Block his partner who was very friendly sort of chap and um, he was saying the same sort of thing well it's not likely he's going to do it but you know, try again a little later, maybe in a month's time. And so we kept trying again, and, and the months became weeks then. And, and so I was constantly talking to him about the event and what we were trying to do. And he was getting more and more interested. So that, that was how it went. But it wasn't great skill. I mean, there was a certain amount of great care being taken, how we went about it. And we didn't have, have anything to lose in a way. It, it wasn't yeah. like we were risking anything. Like that. Yeah. But I, I don't think that festival would have even happened if we hadn't got Bob Dylan. The previous year, we'd we had a small festival with the Jefferson Airplane. I mean, about 10,000 people. And it wasn't profitable. It, would, it kind of broke even just about, I think. But it, it was not a kind of thing that was ever going to develop into anything anything big. Mm -hmm. We learnt about the difficulty of getting people to come from the mainland. There were not enough people on the Isle of Wight to support. Why did you choose the Isle of Wight? Of all well, the places we, on the planet, why well, that's where we lived. And, and it was like a, a local project. And my brother started off with a job as a fundraiser to raise money to build a swimming pool. And the idea of the festival came out. We put on a festival, like a one-day sort of concert. So that's how the idea came out. So it's very local on the Isle of Wight. So the next year, we thought, we'll, we'll try, we've learnt a lot from this, and we'll try and do it again, try and do it bigger and better, and make a success of it. But of course, the, the Dylan thing was 
overarching, really, because, as I say, without Dylan, I, I don't know that we'd have had much of a, an event at all. You know so, what I'm, I'm hearing here, Ray? I'm hearing the optimism of youth. Oh, yes. Like one of the things that gets beaten out of you in the creative industry, because there's so much rejection in the creative industry, and there's so many brick walls that you hit, that many, reasonably, many people go, wait a minute, I've got better ways to spend my energy, and I'm just tired of being constantly rejected. But young people don't have that. It's the gift of being young. So you could just continually phone this. Who's, I mean, you know, I'm a publisher. The number of times that I've said to people, well why don't you contact me later and maybe we can talk about it, hoping that they'll go away and forget about me. So I don't have to be unkind and say mm. no. <laughs> you, you make a good point there. And that brings me to mention Buckminster Fuller. One of the important things Buckminster Fuller, I was going to say preached, but would, would constantly say is that every child is born a genius and the system that you put the child through is to, is to de-genius that child no. and knock it out of them. And that, yeah. that's how we do it. And, so in a way, young people, that they have got a spark of imagination and courage and daring. And by the time they've been through the system, that's been knocked out of them by the system. Yeah. I, I think in a way, I'm fortunate to come back to your original question in that I didn't ever really get that knocked out of me. because Possibly because of the Isle of Wight festivals, because that gave us a kind of a confidence. It gave me a confidence that I could do anything. And you have. And, and I've kind of stuck with that all my life. And, and I've, I mean, since the Isle of Wight Festival, I've, I've never had a job, for instance, in terms of working for anybody in, in, as a job. Mm -hmm. um, I've always worked as a self-employed person on my projects and things. And I've not really had all of that courage and daring knocked out of me. So, that, so that, that's interesting. And it's, I think Buckminster Fuller is absolutely right. Now, so, how did you stumble across Buckminster Fuller? Well, it, he you was mentioned Milton Keynes. It, we, we were invited by the Milton Keynes Development Corporation. Who's we? My brother and I, uh -huh. after the Isle of Wight Festivals. Right. We had quite a big name in ter terms of people could get things done, we could get artists to come and do things. And they were building the new city, and they wanted to have an indoor stadium, but they didn't know how to go about programming it and what kind of artists you might have appearing there, and they brought us in as consultants in the first can, place just just for uh, for the sake of greater understanding could you just say a few words yeah, about uh, that milton, if it's possible milton Keynes was a, a very exciting project that was came about in the mid 60s it was it was going to be a new city of that size quarter of a million people started every year from now on because of the population growth this is um so throughout great, throughout britain, great britain yes they build exactly, a city a year yeah they start one every year that was, that, was it. that was the plan because the population was expanding quite rapidly at that time. Yeah, the boomers. Yeah, and, but by the time Milton Keynes was well underway, the population growth had slowed down and they realised, well, we don't really need to do this. But they kept Milton Keynes going as a, what they called at that time a showcase for Europe. <laughs> that, that's one of the things that they said about it in, in uh -huh. the late 60s. Uh -huh. And I think it is a great showcase for Europe. I mean, it's a great European city and it's a quarter of a million people. It's in north of London, about 50 miles north of London, and takes in a couple of existing towns and a lot of villages. And it absorbed them into the city itself? Yes. And mm -hmm. The city was largely farmland, and it's now all completely urban, and it's in very clearly defined boundaries. Anyway, we're getting into a lot of detail here. But we went away for, I think, the best part of about three or four months and did some research and started writing a report on what we thought the leisure programme could be. And we went completely over the top. 
We, we, we imagine Milton Keynes becoming like a day resort that people go there to this main, I, I won't call it a leisure centre because it's sort of demeaning. It, it was like a, it was an indoor park of 20 acres, you know, completely covered with swimming pools in the park and ice rinks and everything. And everything was in, there was an indoor stadium, there were cinemas and theatres and there was a canoe lake in the basement. There was everything that you can imagine was there. A canoe um, lake. And this is government paid for? Well, that was the point. We, we had a means of paying for it, which is that 25% of the area that could be allocated to this could be used for building offices, which would be like a profit centre to generate capital. Uh-huh. And that capital would pay for the rest. And that was a, a business model, yeah. which worked quite well. And we had a lot of serious consultants on board uh, eventually that... that confirmed all this so it was a viable thing the point is when we submitted our initial proposal they came back and said it's the first time ever that the private sector has come back with a proposition that's better than we imagined it could be rather than worse than what what, what we're initially saying so they, they loved what we what we proposed and it was at that time that one of my colleagues said look you need to look at the work about mr fuller and i said well, who's that and he he immediately showed me couple of his books you know operating manual for spaceship earth yes. and utopia and oblivion and I, I started reading these books and i was blown away I was, what, what a guy what a fantastic extraordinary uh, yeah. extraordinary philosophy for almost anything you could think of on the planet how to make the world work basically yes but of course he'd made his name with the invention of the geodesic dome and you know about the um the Montreal Dome. The, well, I was going to say, this is why I know about Buckminster Fuller, yeah. is because we were taught about him in primary school. I'm right. not making this up, by the way. Okay. My primary school teacher, uh, I don't know, it was part of the national curriculum in those days, but would talk about how, about the geodesic dome in Montreal for Canada, the celebration of Canada's 100th anniversary, yeah. our centennial. And um, that was the showcase piece of architecture for it. Sure. So it was... I was astonished when I left Canada and came to England that he was not well known here because I just thought everybody knew who Buckminster Fuller was. Every school child did. He's very mainstream. But in he Canada. Can, well, it's different because he is—he's a North American gentleman, you know, and he's—he mm. he was very well known in America, and that would spill over into Canada. So, so you, so he brought—you brought him over here. Well, I, I made contacts and. He put me onto his architectural practice. We talked about structures on that. And then his agent in, in London said, he's coming over, so we, we could, you could meet up. So he came to our office. In, we had an office in Mayfair at the time. Ooh. He came to our office, chatted things through. I then took him to Milton Keynes to lecture the Development Corporation. And he talked to 120 architects in a pavilion and gave a lecture that I arranged. I drove him up there in my Bentley. <laughs> and, and drove around, drove around. The, 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 the city was all being developed. And it was like yeah. a lot of it was still farmland, and there were building sites everywhere, as far as I could see. And um, so that was all great stuff. I, I then, I was then invited by him to come and stay with him on his island in off the coast of Maine, and um, travelled over in one of his boats in this sort of tiny island with one house on it. Mm-hmm. Well, that's getting away from the madding crowds. Yeah, and and he. Buckminster was really into yachting, and he was he was into the whole science of the energy in the wind, and 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 how boats could navigate and and be driven by the wind if, 
efficiently if you if you got your maths correct you know so that was my dealings with Buckminster Fuller it the whole scheme petered out in the end because of the the oil crisis in the mid 70s when the population of Milton Keynes was cut back the projected population was cut back from quarter of a million to 150,000 and budgets were being slashed everywhere mm -hmm. the worst thing that happened was that the property prices were plummeting in Britain and so the the office content of our scheme that we're going to pay for all these wonderful things was suddenly not really going to be produced for much money. Uh-oh. And so it was only a temporary blip. I'd say blip, it probably went on for five years, but it was enough to kill wow. the project off. And five years is a long time. But we moved on, I promptly moved on and I got paid off on settlement with them and moved on to other things. So, Ray, the young man that you're describing to me with uh, his office in Mayfair and his Bentley and he's creating a city from scratch or helping to in any case... He sounds to me like he's... Were you a bit cocky then? Very much so, I'd think. I think that we were... We'd had such a boost to our egos, I suppose, from the Isle of Wight Festival. We thought we could do anything. After the 69 Festival, after Bob Dylan, yeah. we were so confident we could do anything. One of our numbers suggested, and I thought it was a great idea, we could put a project together to raise the Titanic. <laughs> because Why not? Well, we Why had, not? Well, we had this idea that you can do anything if you've got enough money. And all you've got to do is get the project together and get backers and you get enough money and you can just do it. Yeah. And, and it was... Well, you know, I don't think you're wrong about well, that. No, I don't, I don't think we are. But I mean, raising the Titanic would be a bit extreme. But it was seriously talked about as something, as a project you could go in for. Now, at that time, I think the Titanic, I'm not even sure it had been discovered where it was. Um, <laughs> that well, glitch. Well, it, it, it might have been recently discovered where it was, yeah. I think. And that was, that, that was a kind of megalomania kind of thinking that was going around our office. Yeah. And... It wasn't just me at all. So what so, happened when it all kind of went a bit rocky? Did you have like a, was it a bit of a, a bit of a crunch time for you? Because right a, now you've got a bit of a golden life is what you're describing as a... Well, it, it wasn't a golden life actually because the, the Milton Keynes project was rumbling along. Incidentally, we, we'd done some concerts in London at the Oval Cricket Ground and Wembley Stadium, but those didn't really work out financially very well. I mean, they didn't really make any money. And so we gave up promoting, and I was drawn away by Milton Keynes and spent several years on Milton Keynes. So that settled things down rather, and, and it was hard work, but very little return. Okay. I, I feel a little guilty from even raising the issue that this might not have all been smooth sailing, but so many of the creative individuals, creative artists that I talked to, were all probably at a level less successful than you are, with less of a national and international stature than you are and than you have. And, um, you, you know, from, from our perspective, from down here in the trenches, looking up to your kind of level of, of achievement, it, it, looks, it looks like a completely different reality. And in an odd way, it's kind of like, it's reassuring to know that even when you're putting on concerts with Chuck Berry and Bo Diddley and these Jerry Lee Lewis and you're not actually making any money out of it. It's like it's like, oh, I know that feeling. You know, you you produce this fantastic work of art and you're kind of quietly congratulating yourself from for doing, you know, something really impressive and then your accountant comes in and goes, Yeah, but didn't make much money out of it, Katie. I think I think the reality of life, um, so far as we were concerned, it was we're in too much of a hurry. Mm -hmm. We weren't paying our dues. We weren't doing the small steps that you need to create a decent business. Mm -hmm. And we go blasting in there for Bob Dylan, you know, so, okay, that's great. That did make money. And then we go an even bigger festival. And it's all so quick. And it, it's so quick that then eventually 
burnt out. And the same with promoting in London. Instead of doing the small steps like other promoters are doing, we go straight into Wembley Stadium. And that's been the story of my life in a way, that we go blasting in there to do something without having paid our dues with the small, small steps. In a way, I don't regret the way we went about it, because had we done the small steps, we'd have probably just sort of en- ended up in mediocre sort of level and never really progressing that far anyway. Why would we? Yeah, I think this is always a tension in in the creative industry, because you can do what you just say, skip all the steps and kind of take the elevator to the top. Yeah. But the whole thing is, it's about ambition too. It is, yeah. And I think one of the things, if you're in the creative industry, you tend to be quite ambitious. It may not be a reasonable ambition, but it it kind of runs like like a warp and a weft through our lives, is that we think big, we dream big, we're dreamers. Well, well, I think you have to be. I mean, if you take any of the typical areas, say if you're in a rock and roll band, if you're a writer, you're not going to make a living unless you become quite famous, are you? Yes. And so you've got to think quite big if you're going to make a living doing it. That's the nature of the, of the arts, isn't it? That, yes. that you don't make money out of it unless you become quite big. Yes. So, so there's that side of it. As the Americans would say, go big or go home. <laughs> well, that's a good way of putting it. But which would take me to the next phase in my life, after Milton Keynes. I'm now in my sort of late 20s. We have a building in the Fulham Road in London. And I split with my brother at that point, And he went back to the Isle of Wight to set up a furniture business that he was interested in, hmm. in doing. And I took on the Fulham Road building to open up an antique shop or a gallery of my Art Deco collection, which I had at that time. I saw it at the time as being a form of retirement. I'm going to retire with a little shop. <laughs> I don't see you ever retiring, frankly. I I did think of it like that at the time. Within two or three years, we were putting on the the centenary exhibition of Emile Jacques Ruhlman, who was the greatest French Art Deco Ebenezer furniture designer of the era, the whole Art Deco era, the master of them all. Mm -hmm. And we're putting on the centenary exhibition in London, in our building in Fulham Road. And, you know, we've got high claim for that, um, you know, in the national press, in the Financial Times, in Country Life, and all these places Gosh, writing about it. We're, we're selling our catalogues in museums across the world. And we've gone from this retiring with this little scrappy shop that I started <laughs> with, I, I was going to retire to, to, to moving upscale and outbidding the French in their auction houses to get some of the best Art Deco in the world. Another another success. Well, that was a success, yes. It was a huge success. And that was a turning point in my life because that financially, it ended up being a success. It also was a fantastic episode in my life because we, we ended up selling a cabinet when we sold it in auction in Monaco. It was a world record price for a 20th century piece of furniture. You know, that was from coming from this... If you, if you saw the stuff we started off with when we yeah. opened this Art Deco shop, there were things like an old train set and tea sets or whatever and go moving up to this sort of yeah. phenomenal piece of furniture and, and it was it was ours it was mine you know and how did you the, find it oh it's a long process I and mean, we, we went to the first trip to paris we, we went there with a, a runner you know a runner is antique somebody who doesn't have a shop but they go from shop to shop with things on their on the roof of their car trying to sell it oh. so a runner was telling us all about paris and he said well come over with you i'll show you around so we go to paris and we go on the flea market and he's buying all sorts of bits and pieces. And I couldn't see anything that was really going to excite me. And he showed us a couple of galleries in, in the expensive area. In fact, it's, the gallery is right alongside the Pompidou Centre, mm-hmm. the Gallery de Luxembourg. And there was a Ruhlman bed there. 
this huge bed in Macassar Ebony and shiny. It's the first time I've seen a piece of room. I've seen it in all the books and I didn't realise how important it was. When I saw it in real life, I realised this is really something else. This bed was, it wasn't a lot of money, it was, it was about £3,000. All weekend I kept saying, look, that bed, forget about buying anything, we should buy that bed. And we didn't buy anything else. And we went back there on the Monday morning and said, right, we'll have that then. And then we put a deposit on it. And then I had a, a week or two to raise the money. Got managed again, got the bed home. And so that was the first piece of Ruhlman that we bought. In those days, it, the galleries in Paris had quite a selection of top pieces still. It hadn't all been sorted out yet. Mm-hmm. And it, it, was, it was all quite viable. Oh. You know, it wasn't ridiculous money that it is today. The greatest example of Art Deco was an Eileen Gray chair that Yves Saint Laurent owned. And it was only a sort of an occasional chair. And it had a kind of a, a cobra coming around, the shape of a cobra coming around to form the chair. In the Yves Saint Laurent collection, it sold for 24 million euros per chair. The numbers just make no, your numbers, jaw drop. No, th- these numbers are incredible. But at the time that we were doing this, we'd come in a bit too late. If we had two years earlier, we would have cleaned up. But we were in time to do what we did and do quite well. Another five years on, it was all over. The top pieces were going for millions. I mean, the, the next stages were, we found in London, we couldn't sell this furniture very easily. We sold to the V&A. I think the V&A have got seven items of ours. But we couldn't sell to the Americans. They didn't want to buy in London. They wanted to buy in Paris. We couldn't sell to the French. There's no way they're going to come buy yes. in London. And the, the British were not big spenders on Art Deco. It was a big international trade. And so we're in the wrong city, really, to be doing what we're doing. And so we closed the gallery and um, kept the furniture, sold the building and kept the furniture. And <laughs> Which is a nice bonus. <laughs> and and we, we sold the furniture off over a period of the next few years got our money back. I was then commissioned to write a book by Academy Editions about a French architect, Louis Sue. Now, Louis Sue was a partner in Sue et Mar, and they wanted a book on Louis Sue, who was originally an architect and quite a renowned architect in France. And I haven't got a clue. I couldn't speak a word of French. I didn't know much about the history of architecture or anything. And so we went over there and had a look round and met his family and started doing some research. And I realized it's a hopeless task. I need some education. And so I started going to education. I enrolled with the Open University. And I eventually did the History of Architecture and Design course and did very well. And my dissertation was on this Ruhlman chap. Mm-hmm. So I was quite well versed in the subject and produced a, a kind of A-star dissertation. And that got me on my way. And it was through that I got into Cambridge to actually do architecture. So my, my last move now on to another phase, which is education. So, 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 just, so are you saying that as a, you went to, as, a, as an adult student to Cambridge yes. to study architecture? Yes. So how old were you? I was 39 when I arrived at Cambridge. So you were 39 when you arrived at Cambridge. Yeah. I'm really impressed to hear about you returning to school at the age of 40, effectively, yeah. because that shows a kind of humility that we don't normally see in people as successful as yourself. You know, you've been hobnobbing with you know, movie stars and things like that. And here you are down with 18-year-olds. <laughs> well, that's an interesting point there because I was very mindful of all that. Remember, I'd, I'd left school at 16. I was kicked out of school, basically told to leave because I was not going to get any qualifications at all. And I managed to get a printing apprenticeship. I was barely read a book in my life. 
I, my spelling was appalling. I could sort of half write and read a bit. You know, I wasn't totally literate, but I certainly wasn't well read or anything like that. It was a hopeless case. So that was my situation. I arrived at Cambridge along with 18-year-olds, 19-year-olds, and I was really amazed at the, the fact, the fact that they accepted me as their equal. I was really quite touched by it, and I thought, this, this is great. And I wanted that because I wanted to enjoy the place and enjoy the company and everything else and not be ostracised as somebody that didn't belong. So I didn't look down on them. I actually looked up to them, if anything. We're going to take a short break here, and we'll be back in a minute after a word from our sponsors. In 2015, Katie Asbesta set up Claret Press. Over the following months, she was so overwhelmed by inquiries from writers for editorial guidance and expertise that she set up Clapham Publishing Services, a business catering to every writing and publishing need. At Clapham Publishing Services, our editors have many years' experience in the publishing industry. We've helped produce a wide range of projects. We've edited everything from fiction to doctoral dissertations, produced copy for blogs and ghostwritten memoirs, and helped with the self-publishing of novels, art books, cookbooks, and non-fiction. Writers who send their work to us know that they're getting experienced and knowledgeable feedback, appropriate for the stage they're working at. All our clients receive the support of a team who are aiming for the same goal as the author. Whatever you're working on, we can tailor our service to you. Get in touch with us today by emailing contact at clappenpublishing.com or visit our website, clappenpublishing.com. It was at Cambridge in my third year doing architecture that I chose as my topic the great collector Jacques Doucet, the French couturier, the Parisian, who was, was the builder of art history libraries, sort of phenomenal operator. I mean, he created the art library, the National Art Library of France, effectively. But among his achievements was he bought Picasso's most important painting, Les Demoiselles d'Avignon. Okay, so I should just unpack these French words because not everybody is as fluent as you are in French. Hmm. So this guy, Jacques Doucet, yeah. made dresses for rich ladies. He was, he was the kind of Yves Saint Laurent of his day. Right, and okay. He was dressing royalty across Europe. You know, yeah. and it was a really top top flight stuff. Yeah, and, and what decade are we talking about? We're talking about, well, he was doing this from 1900 onwards, or right. maybe a little before that, but yeah. his key period, 1920s, yeah. when he was more or less giving up his fashion business and moving on just to purely collecting and creating Art Deco. He assembled the world's greatest collection, without any doubt. Of uh, Art Deco, Art Deco pieces. pieces. Like furniture? F- furniture and paintings. Anyway, among all this art that he was collecting, the paintings as well as furniture, was this Picasso painting, Les Demoiselles d'Avignon, the, the young ladies of Avignon. And Avignon's a city in the south of France. Well, Avignon, there's Rue Avignon in Barcelona, which was alluded to, ah. which is a street where there was a brothel that everybody knew about, and it was suggested it could be that. Some people suggested it was at the town of Avignon, where Max Jacob, his the great poet, who was Picasso's close friend and advisor, had a grandmother living in Avignon. Oh. And people made jokes about it being a brothel in Avignon that was run by, run by his grandmother. <laughs> it was sort of obviously completely sort of jokey stuff that was yeah. had no truth to it at all. But the painting is, is amazing because it, it's the first real modern painting by anybody. It, it's, the, it's the painting that turns the art world on its head. Okay, okay, we're going to, have to stop again because what do you mean by the word modern? 
when well, you see is, a modern well, this painting. Is a, it's a really good question because we've done street surveys on this and you can show pictures to people. Do you regard that as being modern art or do you regard that as modern art? And you can take a survey as to what people think is modern. And there comes a point where something is patently modern. And then there are other times where you think, well, it's not that modern, really. Now, what made this modern? Cubism is clearly modern art, isn't it? I mean, yes. everybody would recognise cubism as modern art. Well, this was the first cubist painting. This was Picasso coming with a bombshell into the art world. Everybody hated it. They thought it was terrible, <laughs> a terrible, terrible thing. that he will, he, he will destroy his career. He'll destroy, you know, the young artist's work in Paris and bring the whole thing into disrepute. Matisse hated it and said he'd get even. And this is a big picture. It's eight foot square. Uh-huh. As big as this wall, you know. Yeah. And it's five semi-naked prostitutes with angles and lacerations it's also a bit cubist like yes and, and there is and you can really go into that in really your book startling. yes yeah i actually have to admit when i was reading your book i did go back and look at google images well, so you should yes uh, of of many of the people that you discuss and their art and puzzling it out yeah and one of the things that i had it's very hard for us now in this day and age to understand the sheer offensiveness of that painting to so many people the the ladies with their with their knees wide open and the bowl of fruit in front with possibly phallic images in it you know as if a a man's phallus had been cut off and displayed for the for the women and and you just you 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 go oh yeah you're right i'd never thought of it that way it's it's a it's an eye-opener your book it's very it's not i mean it's a fun read because it's a, you know, it's a, it's definitely a mystery uh, based around um, Jacques Doucet, but it's a very interesting, eye-opening read of that particular era in Paris as well, and the art world. Yes, well, indeed, it, I mean, it was a very interesting period. It, it was like rock and roll in the sixties, Paris in the twenties. It's the, the two decades for me. Uh, I've got great similarities. Mm-hmm. There's huge innovations taking place. And what's more, the two leaders um, in each decade, and you've got Picasso in the 20s and you've got Bob Dylan in the 60s, mm-hmm. and they're both them very similar in many ways. Interesting. They, they, they will neither of them talk about their art. Mm-hmm. They will both of them be obtuse of the press and, and give odd, odd replies to questions and, and not answer questions properly. Um, they're both them game changers in mm-hmm. their spheres to the point whereby they've really changed a huge amount for half a century. Mm-hmm. So there's a, I've been drawn to these two people by chance, I think, in a way. Maybe I'm just fascinated by the fact that you can have an object like that that can be so important and so influential. I want to know more about it. I also want to know why it is that people don't know it. This is what really fascinates me, that how come the, the most influential painting in the history of all art, possibly... How come people don't know that? True. Everybody, I knows, didn't. everybody knows about the Mona Lisa. Yes. But who knows about Les Demoiselles d'Avignon? And in your book, you, you mentioned something which I think is quite impressive, which is weave a, a story with a lot of factual information. And generally when people do that, the, the factual information tends to weigh down the storytelling. And you kind of get lost in like a, 
like a like a pamphlet, you know, you're a primer on history, and yet you managed quite cleverly to turn this into a rollicking good read. Um, well, I have, I have to say and give full credit to Caroline here, my daughter and my co-author, that she was a stickler for avoiding that trap of just yeah. be, just becoming a sort of a textbook. Yeah, because um, you, you don't want to compete with Wikipedia. And she was really sort of on the case of that. I, I, full credit to her for um, the extent to which we've avoided that. But it, it, it was difficult because you do want to talk about this stuff and you want this information you need to get across to tell the story, but you don't want to sound like a textbook. Mm-hmm. Which is tricky. Well done, by the way. Well, thank you. For yeah, uh, you know, I, I highly recommend it for those of you who are interested in a, in a detective story. It's an art detective story, yeah. as well as you love that era and you and you want to kind of lose yourself in that era, or maybe learn a little bit about it. I'm, I'm, I, I hesitate to, to admit out loud how much I actually uh, you you opened my eyes. Well, you're very kind. Thank you for saying that. <laughs> so you know, Ray, you strike me as as like Buckminster Fuller, a visionary, a businessman, and, you know, an integral part of the creative industry. I ask all my guests this, and this might be trickier for you to do the average person. What is it that mostly attracted you to go into the creative industry? You could have been a printer, for heaven's sakes. You know, they were still unionized. This is before Thatcher. You could have had a good job and a pension. And like, what, what was it that attracted you to go this radical step? Well, I think I was drawn into it to some extent by chance. And, you know, if you go into business in, in, a, in a, an area that is creative, such as promoting rock festivals or building the leisure content of a new city, then you've got to engage with the creative side of that sector. And I, I am drawn to that. I think, I think I'm a, designing things appeals to me. I love designing things. And I think designing ways of doing things as well. As an architect, when you design a building, it's, it's not just what the thing looks like, it's how it's actually built. How do you make that work? How does that actually can happen? How does that element go together with that other element? You know, mm-hmm. So there's a very highly creative process of that kind of just how to do things. And I've been doing that all my life in various ways. You're both, you're kind of fusing two ends of the spectrum, the, the visionary and the pragmatic. And the pragmatic yes, I, I think that's a good way of putting it. But I'm not terribly good at being imaginative, I have to say, in terms of, say, writing non-fiction or painting a picture. But I'm, I'm better at organising and specifying and working things out and making things yeah. happen, perhaps. But, Ray, you know, you're talking to a publisher. I, I can't write for toffee. I'm not, it's not an itch I want to scratch, either. You know, <laughs> I've got no desire to write a novel. Right. Um, and yet I'm part of the creative industry myself, and... I mostly spend a lot of my time organizing and seeing where things can go and strategizing for how I can get things from point A to point B. It doesn't make me a creative artist, but it does mean that you and I are both part of the creative industry. Without oh, sure. us, there no, wouldn't be... There may not no, be. sure. I, I realize, I realize I'm, I'm sort of connected with the creative industries of various sorts and always have been. But there are... You're sort of typical creative people, I say typical creative people, somebody who's a painter and they just do nothing but paint all the time. There's a different sort of yes, role different. in the creative industry. So uh, yeah. we're a writer that just writes novels all the time. Yeah, you know. yeah, we're, so, uh, we're, we're part of a larger picture, yeah. let's put it that way. Yeah. And I'm very glad that you are a part of it. So 
even if you kind of fell into it by accident. <laughs> and is there any one contribution that you've made from the Isle of Wight to to your not to to the the books you've written to your curation of Art Deco works? Is there any one thing that you think has been your greatest contribution to the creative industry? There, there are two things. First of all, there's a, the book itself, Picasso's Revenge, which I hope will have an impact in bringing this painting to the public attention eventually, one yeah. way or another, that, that it will catch on and it will people will realise what an important thing it is. So that's one thing that perhaps I could answer with. The other thing we haven't even touched on is that my environmental work. Yes, now, true. The environmental work, and I'll try and be as quick as possible on that. We, go in, we set up a thing called a millennium debate to, de- to debate the environment as a way of celebrating the millennium, mm-hmm. just in 1997. But we drifted into a, an in-schools project called Blue Planet Day. And Blue Planet Day was a, a project where we took a whole year group off their timetable for a whole day, and we, we set up workshops. So we have 200 kids, 20 different workshops, and we start the day with a multimedia play that Caroline and I wrote. So again, I'm drawn into writing a play now. I start off, the play starts off as being a lecture that I gave, which was dreadful. <laughs> Lecturing these 12-year-old children about the environment and, and making the world work. Caroline was, again, was, was a great creative force here. She said, no, you can't do that again. We've got to find a better way of putting this information across. We could put it all into a play. And she took the script of my lecture and worked it into, into a play where we acted out. That is a huge creative process. And if you'd seen this thing, it, it would blow you away because, I mean, there were just fantastic things going on. There's song and dance. We got through hundreds of slides. There's video. Um, and there's the whole acting of the play. There's beaming down into the school, which is done by trick photography and things. Wow. And, and, and it was probably the most creative thing that... I've ever been involved with, you know, directly creative in a hands-on way. But also, I think that it was more important to me than the Isle of Wight festivals or anything I've ever done. We, we did um, 100 of these events over five years and we worked with 20,000 children, almost every school in Oxfordshire. And, you know, we couldn't get it funded. We could not get funding. It was shocking. Yes, I agree. We had a bit of funding at first, and then it dropped off. The government changed the rules, and then yes. that funding got cut off. And people that funded education said, no, you're environmental. People that funded environmental said, no, you're educational. And it just... Mm. I had a full-time fundraiser at one point for a whole year trying to raise funds, and we'd just been turned down by endless sort of potential funders. Well, I, I swear we'd rather see our planet burn up the way Australia is right now sure, in the yeah. Amazonia than change anything at all. I know, you know the California inertia. as well. Yeah, California, it, yeah. It didn't make any difference, does it? What, what point are people going to... I think the problem is, and I've become a pessimist now, and that is that I don't believe the human race is going to do anything about these problems until they have to. Yeah. And when they get to the point where they have to, it'll be too late. Yes. Because the lead times are so great. Yes. Most problems we can deal with when you have to. When they're small. He had the smaller the problem, the less yeah. of a problem it is, and then the easier yeah. it is to solve. So, so I, I'm kind of really worried about what the future holds for mm-hmm. my, my grandchildren, you know. I mean, yes, of course. Fun. But, you know, this is the fact that someone is, um, you know, creating works of art and bringing this to everybody's attention gives me some cause for hope, Ray. Be, okay. Thanks to you and Caroline, I think we can... Um, 
as long as there are people like you and Caroline and Buckminster Fuller in the world kind of being innovative and visionary uh, and well-organized, as you clearly are, we might make it through. That's what I've got my fingers and toes crossed. On that note, I'd like to thank you very much for being our guest of the day. Well, thank you for having um, me. It was an absolute pleasure to talk with you, Ray. Can, just to f- wrap it up, Picasso's Revenge, you're, yeah. uh, the classiest novel to come out of Oxford since Philip Pullman's His Dark Materials. Where is that available? Where can people get a hold of that? You can get it on Amazon or you can get it from our website, picassosrevenge.com, yeah. or from our publisher, Medina Publishing. So it's um, so it's widely available. In it's other generally words. available, yeah. yeah. And the um, in hardback or Kindle. Oh, okay, both. Okay, yeah. excellent. And the the painting it's based on, the the Ladies of Avignon, um, Picasso's painting. Yeah. Where 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 can we see that? It's in the Museum of Modern Art in New York. Well, that's a long way to go. It is a long way to go. <laughs> they they bought it from Jack Doucet's widow. It is their number one possession out of their three million odd items that they've got. Well, if it's a work of art that changed history, then it yes. seems fair enough to me. They actually say that on the label alongside it. Yeah. That this is this is no less a thing than reinventing art. Yes. Well, <laughs> reinventing art, reinvent, and here we are with Ray Folk, who's reinvented music and um, re- helped to create a city and um, continues to help create a new future for our children and our grandchildren. Thank you so much, Ray. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you. Next week, our guest will be Eugene Skeef, the musician, composer, poet, and activist. So pour yourself a glass of claret and join our conversation. Claret and Conversation is available on all major platforms. If you like this podcast and would like to hear more about professionals in the creative industry, please subscribe, comment, and share. We'd love to hear from you. For the occasional update and other news, please like us on Twitter or like the Facebook page for Claret Press or Clapham Publishing Services or subscribe to either website.